For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts and today I'm delighted to welcome Melissa Thompson to the podcast. Melissa is an award-winning food writer and recipe developer. She is the founder of Supper Club and Pop-Up Foulmouths and was awarded the Guild of Food Writers Award in 2021. She's just published her first cookbook, Motherland. Melissa, welcome to Table Talk. Hi Olivia, thank you for having me. Melissa, we're going to start where we always do, at the very beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories of food is my, my parents cooking in the kitchen and the smells. I think, I think smells are probably one of the most evocative senses when it comes to food and memories. And my dad was in the Navy and he had travelled around a lot and would kind of pick up different styles and, and things, different sort of cuisines from around the world and then kind of recreate them. And we lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years when I was younger. I don't remember it. But that really informed a lot of the food that we ate when we were younger. He would cook a lot of Cantonese food, a lot of Jamaican food, and then just kind of constantly experimenting. And my mum's Maltese, so she, my dad's Jamaican, my mum's Maltese, and so she would cook kind of her classic dishes, kind of put you know, a lot of pasta. Her lasagna is legendary. One really strong memory is a dish. I think it might have been some sort of pork dish, like Cantonese dish, and at some point in the making of it, or it might have been chicken with black beans, I can never remember, but at some point of the cooking, the smell is quite overwhelming and not that pleasant, and I would always be quite scared about what we were going to eat, but then by the time it was on the table, it was delicious, and it took a while for me to be able to associate that horrible smell with this delicious thing that we were eating, and then eventually I came to kind of be a bit more relaxed whenever I smelt that unpleasant smell, knowing that I'd be eating well. And were you aware when you were young that you were eating probably more adventurously than a lot of your contemporaries or was it just normal? Yeah, I think I think I was kind of aware. I don't think I don't think from sort of when I was really, really young, because you don't really notice things like that. But then I think certainly in primary school, I remember some of my primary school friends coming round or I'd go round to their house and because it was Weymouth and the the you know, kind of Weymouth, it wasn't that kind of ethnically diverse back in the nineteen eighties. And so the food that we ate, you know, I remember going to my friend's houses and it would be things like, I remember going to my friend Chris's house and having pork chops with mashed potato and, some, and sort of veg, like kind of meat and two veg. Mm. And then things that we had, especially the sort of the Jamaican food, I was very aware that that was kind of, we didn't really have that at other people's. But also I think that one of the big things was portion sizes and my friend's my parents were so strict about finishing your plate and they would also serve quite big portions and sometimes they would serve stuff that I didn't like and me having to finish it and also my friends and I, I remember feeling sorry for my friends thinking oh god like you're not going to get away with not finishing this because my parents are going to insist and then going to my other friends houses and looking at a plate and thinking oh gosh is this it because you know <laughs> I was so used to being really well fed and so sometimes I'd um I think well, I'll need to go and have a sort of a second meal. This is going to be my pre-meal, and then I'll go and, I'll go and have to stock up somewhere else, somewhere else. Was the family kitchen? I mean, it's clearly a sort of melting pot of different cuisines. But did you know at the time what was sort of part of your heritage? Were you aware of you know your father bringing in Jamaican dishes and your mother bringing in Maltese, or was it just that you lived in a household that was pretty broad in its likes and dislikes of food? Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of these things sort of occur to you on a subconscious level and. 
going out, you know, we would never go to, I mean, we didn't go to restaurants that often, but if we did, they'd generally be kind of like pubs or, you know, pubs with food and having kind of like the classic kind of 80s, 90s menus of, you'd have like sort of steak and steak and chips with a choice of sauce and, you know, kind of your classic fish dish. So I think for me, it was, I knew that if we were going to a certain place, I would eat a certain type of food. So if we went to my grandparents' house in Darlington, I knew there would be curry chicken and other things I don't I'm trying to think of other, other dishes that my, my grandma I mean it's mainly the curry chicken that I would remember because I loved it so much and then if we we're going if it was any kind of celebration up in Darlington or, or kind of sometimes we come up to London and it would be kind of the with Jamaican contingent I knew that there would be stuff like you know you have your fried fish your patties and so it was it wasn't more that I was making a conscious connection between the food that I was eating and certain countries it was more I was making a connection between certain foods and the environments in which they would be eating, which obviously were kind of whether they were Jamaican. There was context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't kind of consciously connected to a country of origin, but more just the, the place where I would be eating them. And it sounds like mealtimes, as well as the food, mealtimes were important to your family growing up. Oh, yeah, ma- massively. I mean, so my mum would cook, I guess, mainly during the week. My dad, you know, would work quite long hours in the Navy. My mum also worked, but then so she would sort of, she would cook quite quick things. And then I remember on Friday nights, not all Friday nights, but we'd have sort of hamburgers, not, not in a bun, but just kind of the burger, chips and baked beans. And that was kind of really, I don't know, I felt like it felt like a bit of a treat because it was so kind of, I guess, ordinary. And I remember always getting indigestion, even from a young age. I don't know if it's because I ate it so quickly or because the food was kind of more processed, I don't know. But then kind of always sitting around a table and just my dad's, kind of, you know, he's getting quite lost in, in the preparation of food. And he's very, he's a very meticulous chef in his prep. I, I guess what we'd call like mise en place right now. Like, you know, I, I don't, I, that wasn't kind of a phrase in my, in my vocabulary at the time, but he would be sort of really organised in his prep. But I mean, it, food wasn't always really joyful because my parents were so insistent that we ate everything. My brother and I would sometimes, you know, there were certain things I hated, so like mushrooms and things like that. And I remember my brother teaching me how to sneak certain foods off your plate wrap them in a kitchen towel and then be asked to be excused and go to the toilet and flush them down the toilet <laughs> and they used to call me hamster when I was a kid because I if I didn't enjoy something I would just I, I, I really struggled to swallow it mm-hmm. and, and and I think actually now being a parent I think children do have a bit of a suspicion of things that are kind of you can't really tell what they are on your plate so I, you know there were certain things I really hated I mean Brussels sprouts and broad beans things like that which my parents for some reason would still insist that I ate and so I would be sitting there with my cheeks stuffed full of food because I couldn't swallow it. And I, I kept on kind of taking mouthfuls. And as a point, I, I would sit in the table watching the sky turn dark outside because I couldn't finish this food and they were making me. That was the slightly um, harsher side. And, and it's something that I, I definitely don't do with my, with my daughter these days. And what about at school? What was school food like for you? So it was lunchboxes at primary school and I think they were kind of ordinary um although my dad my dad was more of a treats person so I remember he would always cut them into squares which I really liked and my and my mum would do them in triangles because triangles were more practical because they could be fit 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 inside a square box easily but my dad knew I preferred them to be cut into squares and then kind of there was always a yogurt a piece of fruit I think it was just quite it was quite ordinary and then for secondary school I went to a a sort of military boarding school over in Suffolk and the food was all right, actually. And it, it was, I remember for breakfast, you could either have a hot breakfast with protein, kind of, and it was always like fried bread, scrambled egg. And also that really horrible kind of grey 
a scrambled egg that sits in water. And for some reason, I, I really enjoy that kind of scrambled egg, like can, <laughs> canteen scrambled egg. I find I get a lot of comfort from that. Or you could have cereal, and then they would have they would have toast and stuff like that. And you could have you could have either or, but you could also have a bit of a hot breakfast without as long as you didn't have protein. So as long as you didn't have sausage or, or bacon. And because I was always ravenous as a kid, I was really active. I did a lot of sport, and so I kind of would over the years worked out to get the perfect breakfast so it would be kind of raw beans some fried bread a bit of scrambled egg and then a bowl of cereal and then kind of tea that was that was ready made and butter that would be communal butter trays on the table that were always really rock solid and then you know and I think for the dinner it was always fine and stuff like I remember one one dish that I really liked was these turkey drumsticks with mashed potato and sweet corn and gravy I used to really look forward to forward to that so that was yeah that was it and then obviously on holidays whenever because I'd come back for half term or for the long holidays and the first thing that my brother and I always did was head straight to the fridge to see what leftovers there were and normally that my parents would have like cooked something like dad would have cooked some curry chicken or some curry goat or something so we could have a bit of that because there wasn't really that much at my boarding school of kind of more international food should we say and was it alongside your father that that you learned to cook yeah, I think it was just, it was observing. He he was never really one to, and even now, he can have loads of things to be getting on with. And if I ask to help, he'll say no. And, and I'm the same. I don't like people interfering, although I do try to relax it a little bit more and try to get people involved. But yes, yeah, so it was observing him and just kind of watching him do his thing. And my mum as well, and watching, like, watching what she was doing. And then a lot of it was trial and error. I remember going to uni and really fancying some lamb. And so I bought some lamb from a supermarket fried it really quickly it was like these chunks of lamb like stewing lamb probably and then put it into a sandwich and I remember because it it was so chewy because it was just it was the wrong cut and I didn't know what I was doing and I could feel that lamb in my stomach for about three days afterwards just sitting undigested kind of And, and then also I remember when my dad my dad served in the first gulf war and it must have been before I went to school unless it was in one of the holidays, but I think I was quite young and I wanted to make my mum a roast dinner. So I took out a chicken from the freezer, tried to defrost it in the microwave and then roasted it. But then I think it ended up burnt on top and kind of raw underneath. And just, yeah, and that was just f- like from observing. But obviously if, you just, if you're just watching and then you try to recreate it, I don't remember that being particularly edible, but then my mum was just really nice about it and kind of and like sort of helped me. And then I cooked another roast with a smaller bit of meat. It was a red meat. I can't remember if it was lamb or beef. And so I think that was probably the first meal that I properly, properly cooked by myself. And when, when did you go from sort of just cooking in the home or cooking at university to, to this becoming a career? How did that happen for you? Sort of looking back, there are so many things that influence what you, what you end up doing in, in, in adulthood that, you, that you're not really aware of at the time. And I think for me, so I had, after I finished uni, I came back to Weymouth. It was only meant to be for a couple of weeks to, to do some work experience at my local newspaper, the Dorset Echo. And I ended up staying for three years. I got a, I got a job there. And so there were lots of things. Like I, I got a really solid g- group of friends who are still like my best mates today. And we would, you know, I guess it's that thing when you're kind of growing up and, and you know, people would like, you, you start to have a bit of independence. People would come around to your house and, and I'd cook like curry goat and I'd cook sort of curry vegetables. And then at the paper, it was 
you know, people starting to get interested in like the provenance of food and, and we were in Dorset. So the whole kind of like farming agricultural side of things and then translating that into what people were eating. And I started doing a food column that ended up being like a bit of a section in the paper. I think it was about four pages long. And so talking to people, like I went to an abattoir and I was watching cows being killed and that, that process of them being kind of stripped down for, for consumption and going like sort of, you know, fishing with, with fishermen, like catching bass and and mackerel and when I was 15 I had my first job in a delicatessen and being you know I hated all cheese apart from kind of your classic like cheddar and mozzarella and that really kind of horrible parmesan that comes in and you know the dried parmesan stuff and then I and I hated all kind of like blue cheese and stuff like that and then I got this job in this in this deli and being exposed to all of this food and these, these cheeses getting to understand them and getting to kind of know them a bit better just from seeing them on the shelf but handling them and feeling them under my um, under my hands which gave me a kind of appreciation for the skill that goes into it so all of that kind of built into it like sort of the writing speaking to producers feeling the passion and why people do stuff like meeting organic dairy farmers and then I tried to get a job in food in food writing after leaving the paper but I couldn't and so then I ended up going into like general features doing interviews and stuff like that but then I was always cooking and just getting real joy from cooking. And then my sister-in-law, who's Japanese, introduced me to karage chicken, like Japanese fried chicken. And I was smitten. I thought it was <laughs> the best thing in the world. And then I would literally get, take all of the ingredients, take them to my friend's house, and then we would cook the we, we, we would cook this karage chicken like for it felt like I don't know for months every weekend and then I was just like this is ridiculous saw an advert about a course or like a weekend course about running your own supper club on a whim signed up to it and by now I was working at the Daily Mirror and then went on this course and then just kind of again on a whim started a supper club and that was in our in our house my partner Kate would be in the kitchen kind of helping me out doing all sorts and and she's always been a massive support you know anything I've, I've done my other friend would do the the front of house and then it just grew and like people came which blew my mind you know like strangers whenever the doorbell rang and I'm like oh god like this is it like we're gonna have strangers in the house and then I started doing sort of hiring bigger spaces to do that and then eventually left journalism and, and did food full time so that was that was it really that was kind of how how I got properly into cooking I guess professionally like untrained professionally but cooking you know sort of commercially. How did you find those first few goes at cooking cooking food supper clubs are hard work right you're turning your home into a mini restaurant mm. and you're not doing it in a professional kitchen it's like it's it's a bit of a baptism of fire to professional cooking I think oh absolutely absolutely it became easier but it was always the kind of stomach lurching at that first doorbell where people would arrive never it never went away and the adrenaline beforehand and we would always have a fire because I was cooking with gas and it was cooking this fried chicken so you know, you're kind of draining it and then the kitchen towel would catch a light because it's been sitting, you know, it's got oil on it. But we had, I managed to get this screen because we had a kitchen diner kind of thing and then the front room. So it was all open plan and I got this screen so no one could ever see what's happening in the kitchen. And so there's kind of lots of hush, like, what's going on? Don't do that. <laughs> and all this, but no one was really aware of it because we'd have, I'd have music playing in the dining room. But that was all right. Like what was the biggest baptism of fire was when I, I went into... When I left journalism, I was doing kind of, you know, that I ramped up to doing maybe a couple of nights a week instead of just the one. And, and it was every week rather than monthly. But then I got a, a residency at a pub in Clapham and that was seven days a week. And that almost destroyed me. Yeah. It was because I, I had no clue. You know, when you're doing a supper club, it's just what you're doing for that night. And also everyone's eating the same thing and it's all going out at the same time. Mm. But obviously receiving orders kind of just whenever and, and having an a la carte menu 
so I didn't even know, you know, I was saying about mise en place at the beginning, like I didn't even know what mise en place was. And I thought I could make up coleslaw as I was going along rather than making a big batch of it to last the night. And that first week we had on the Monday, it was the pub quiz, the pubs, pub quiz. It was always really busy. So it got absolutely rammed. I remember the bar staff being like, I've not seen it this busy before. And, and I was just like, oh, like this, like what have I done? The Tuesday, they were saying, oh, Tuesday's always really, really quiet, so don't worry about it. Tuesday was rammed as well. And then, so all of my stock was completely cleared. On the Wednesday, it was all kind of, you know, having bloggers and influencers and things like that in. And they were all my friends, but still, it was just, uh, because I was so panicky, like, it's like I had this pork dish that was cooked in soy sauce and it didn't need salt, but I absentmindedly added salt to it so that it, the result was really, was really salty. And it was just, it was so stressful, but I managed to turn it around and I just learned, I mean, you have to, don't Mm. you, when you're doing these things, you just, you have to do it. Otherwise, what are you going to do? And it was really successful, but it was the most stressful time of my life. Like I wouldn't even allow myself to sit down because I felt that sitting down for five minutes was a waste of time. There was always something I could do in that, in that time. I remember the feeling in my big toe on my right foot. I I lost the feeling because I was just standing all the time. I lost so much weight and it was, um, I never saw my partner. It was, it was just... The, the sense of relief when that was over was unlike anything I've, I've, felt, <laughs> I've felt since or before. Were, were you food writing alongside this or, or was that, did you sort of take time to go and chef? How, how did you manage it? Yeah, it was, a, it was a clean break. And by that time, I, I had kind of become a bit disillusioned with the journalism that I was doing and my heart wasn't in it. And it felt very different to the food because I think, I think somewhat naively at the time, although I do think there's an element of truth to this, I was, you know, I felt that food was very, it was almost more of an honest, honest career. And it was, what's the word I'm looking for when you're, like, if you're good. Uh, meritocratic. Mer- yeah, it's, it's meritocracy where, you know, if your food is good, then you will be busy. And, and I think that is true to a degree, but then I, I also think there are kind of barriers, you know, the same sort of barriers that there are in, in any, any other kind of area of life. And I didn't feel the same with what I was doing and with the writing. And then, and I actually thought I'd left food writing or left writing behind. And obviously I would kind of write stuff on social media, but that was kind of quite short form, obviously, because, you know, you can't really kind of go really long. But it was only until a bit later, because then I, I, I got pregnant and I thought I would still be, I hadn't really thought it through, to be honest. I thought I'd be able to carry on. And then for the first three months, I had really bad nausea continuously and the food, the ingredients that I was cooking with were the worst triggers. So soy sauce, like the smell of soy sauce. And I'd also spilt some soy sauce in the car. So any time I went in the car, I was just trying to not not be sick. And then I was just exhausted. And, and, I, and I kind of, I, I ended up really disliking what I was doing, which is actually in hindsight was probably quite helpful because now I didn't miss it when I stopped. I took a month off. It was going to be August anyway. And, and I just said for the first trimester, I was just in kitchens doing this and just hating it. And then I took a month off. It was August and August is always quite quiet for hospitality anyway. And then I never went back because after not doing it. So then I, I kind of tried to rebuild my writing, kind of, you know, like my old contacts and, and was doing bits of writing. But it still wasn't food writing. That came a bit later after the birth of my daughter. A lot of the food writing that, that you've done in recent years has been looking at the need for better diversity and inclusivity within the British food industry and hospitality. What kind of power do you think food writing has to to alert people to those issues? I think a lot of power because I think I think if you're interested in food, you're already quite a curious person and inquisitive, and you you know like to 
experiment and you like to try different things and you basically like to travel right through your plate and through your palace and so I think because I think those the issues of inclusivity and diversity have already got the foot in the door in your psyche in one psyche and so it's just kind of then using food and food writing as a as a means to expand on that you know I think I think sometimes there is a bit of a, a suspicion I'm not sure if suspicion is correct but I think I think people almost feel comfortable seeing someone who looks like them cooking a food, which I think, you know, if you look at Southeast Asian food, some of the most buzziest restaurants cooking Southeast Asian food in the country at the moment are headed by a white chef. And I, and I also I almost think that, that people kind of, it makes it, I don't know, a, a bit more of an easier gateway for them to be open or kind of to explore this cuisine. And I think that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a shame because I think, the food they're doing is, you know, is the food I've had from chefs who are white doing foods outside their culture, like, is often really tasty. For me, what excites me is hearing about people's connection to the food from a younger age, not because they've travelled there as an adult. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to kind of roll up the old trope of, oh, oh, yeah, I sort of went out there on my gap year or went on holiday for two weeks to Thailand and now I want to cook Thai food. Because I know people are more invested in that. But I think for me, what excites me is, is hearing about people's excitement. I don't know, like speaking to a woman, I spoke to a woman who's cooking food in, in Manchester and I was doing a piece about barbecue around the world. And she was talking to me about Suya in Lagos and how she would spend all her school money on Suya. And her mum, like she'd always get a, like a telling off from her mum, but she was like, oh, yeah, I didn't care because it was so tasty. And then going on to describe Suya and the buzz of the market. And for me, like you know, it transports me to it. And it's like, I kind of can piggyback on her memories and just kind of feel that same connection. And it really, that, that's what excites me. So I think food writing has the potential to be really powerful. And also because I think people don't want to be necessarily lectured to, and they don't want to, I, I think sometimes these discussions that we have, it, it, they, they can be, if they don't affect you, they can be quite remote and it's hard to understand them. And I think food, because everyone has to eat and food is all around us, then food is just a really helpful tool in, in, in that respect. And leading on from that, tell us, tell us where Motherland came from. When did you decide you wanted to write it? How did you come up with the idea? Tell us all about it. So, so Motherland was a book that I'd been looking for. I, I really wanted to find out more about the history of Jamaican food. Like, I love, I love the history of food. Like, I, I love, you know, it's, it's like one of those things, it's, and not just in food. You know, when you have stuff, that, that things that are around you that you just take for granted because you've, they've always been there. I don't know, like, like language, right? Like certain things, why we call something something, and actually there's a reason for it, or, or expressions or sayings. I find that really interesting, being, like finding out where that expression comes from. And sometimes then you, that gives you an insight into how things used to be into history because it's like, all right, okay, that's, that's quite interesting. I'm trying to think of an example and I can't. And so with food, I think it's the same sort of thing. Like why is, why is a certain dish like, you know, and, and, and not just with food from outside Britain, like all food, kind of regional food in Britain as well. And, and I find it just interesting. And so, and obviously Jamaica is so unique in its history and the cuisine is so unique. And I wanted to like almost be able to read the recipes in context with with the history and the book didn't exist and so I was actually speaking to publishers I, I went to a sub club and met some publishers and I'd actually put someone else forward I, I emailed them after um, we'd been speaking and I was like oh you know this person I think would be quite interested maybe they, they could write a book and they were like well have you thought about writing a book that was almost like a bit of a sort of a light switch from going from this oh I really want to 
find this book and, and read it to then, I guess, that kind of planted the seed of maybe, maybe I could write it. And then after I started my column in BBC Good Food, my would-be agent got in touch. And, and then I, I found the whole process quite surreal because I can't believe that Motherland exists. I can't believe that it has the title that I, that I came up with, which was a working title. And, and actually it was, you know, they, they kind of went for it. And just being able to realise a project like that, that, you know, wanting to find this book and then actually being in the position to write it myself was, it's a massive privilege that I still have to kind of pinch myself because I think it's one of those things where I was really interested to find out more about it. And then I think often in life, you know, you think you're unique, but then as you get older, you realise that actually if you find something interesting, the chances are someone else is going to find it interesting. And yeah, so that's that was it really. And then just kind of researching it and then the recipes and, and being able to, you know, bring in so many different elements from my childhood, from like my parents' conversations with my parents that again, you just have when you're younger or you just have when you're at any age and you don't really think one day you'll be able, they'll, they'll become part of a book that, you, that you're lucky enough to get to write. And what do you hope people take from Motherland? I hope it's educational. I, I hope, well, I mean, I guess first and foremost, I want it to be a book where people take it to bed, read it, and then think, right, that's what I want to cook. And um, when they're cooking it, they kind of have an idea of the roots of that dish and the origins and the, the environment in which that dish emerged from. And I'd like them to maybe have a bit more of an understanding about Jamaican food beyond jerk. And not to say that I don't love jerk. I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book about jerk because it's, it's incredible and it's got a really special story. But just all the kind of the nuances and, you know, I think people... If you, like, often if I talk about Jamaican food people go oh yeah but I don't like I don't like spicy food and it's like Jamaican food doesn't have to be spicy you know that's kind of uh, it, it, it's it has spices and it has it has chili heat but you can adjust that just like you can with anything else you know why that, that doesn't need to be a barrier like Thai food is very potentially very spicy but you can you can change that so I, I guess I just would like people to be a bit more informed about this cuisine which I think is is just one of the best in the, in the world. And what for you is comfort food? Comfort food for me is, I guess it can be lots of different things. It can be food which it can transport me to a place where I don't know, there's certain dishes. It, it can transport me to a place and a time that evokes really happy memories, whether it's as a kid in a certain, you know, in a certain space and time. Like if I, if I smelled curry chicken, just I, I can remember my excitement as a kid with the anticipation of eating it or you know, it, it can be chips, cheese and beans, which is a, a Weymouth classic. And after a night out and that puts a smile on my face, it reminds me of, of my friends who are still my friends now, but just kind of those times that were so, that felt so innocent and so carefree and so fun. It can be plantain, which like plantain frying and, and my daughter is, is just mad about plantain. I like, loves it. And that kind of brings me comfort or just, you know, like food, or like I, I don't know if my partner says, should we get a should we get a takeaway and then and we can just get something that's just kind of you know just comforting and we don't have to cook and just kind of we're all cozy on the sofa eating it it can be it can be lots of things really I, I guess there are certain dishes I mean like for me kind of oxtail will always be a, a comfort food for me because it's just the feel of it in my mouth and just kind of the the how it yields and how I feel afterwards just I want to kind of have a little nap and it just feels, <laughs> it, it feels ha- it makes me feel happy especially if someone else has cooked it because it takes quite a long time mm. to cook. It's not labor, well, it's not labor intensive in that it kind of requires a lot of watching over, but it just takes a long time because it's such a tough cut. Fried chicken will always be a comfort food to me. 
yeah, it can, it, it can mean, it mean a, a lot of things. But I think for me, it's definitely or like chicken soup, you know, chicken soup with with spinners in it, kind of the spinners, like dumplings, kind of these little dumplings that you have in Jamaican food. That's a comfort food. I think I think comfort food is also about texture and just things that are a bit chewy and maybe slightly heavier and just, yeah, kind of just, I don't know, they just kind of, I was going to say light up the senses, but it's not really like, they almost dull the senses, not in a negative way, but it's just kind of, they, they don't require too much thought. It's, it's completely unchallenging food. I guess that's what comfort food means to me. It means a lot. And finally, Melissa, what would your desert island meal be? Your your ultimate, your final meal? Wow. I guess it's going to have some fried chicken there, some dumplings. There's um, a restaurant near me, Xinjiang, in Deptford, and um, they do these sort of wontons in this kind of chilli oil, and they are so good. I guess some sort of noodles with a good bite to them. A bit of pa- like a pasta dish. Oxtail's got to be on there. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it that stomach capacity is no limit, right? No, 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 I, no, I no. You go wild. In, in this, in this, <laughs> amazing. So, and it would mainly be savoury food because um, I, I, I'm definitely more of a savoury person. Oh, I'm trying to think of everything because I know that I'll kick myself if I don't include. <laughs> yeah, so like a bit of pasta, some some sort of fritter. I like a bit of, yeah, some sort of fritter. If I was to have a pudding, it would be something creamy, either ice cream, like I adore ice cream, or maybe like some sort of custard tart. I really like a custard tart. There's a Guinness punch pie in the in the book, which I, I really like, even though I've, I've made it about three million times. I, I, I find it, it's really, really tasty. Maybe, yeah, and I'd have different fried chicken. Oh, maybe some wings as well, actually. There's um, maybe like some fish sauce wings, sort of Vietnamese fish sauce wings. Oh, but then we're talking about Vietnamese food as well, maybe like some sort of... Uh, <laughs> Like a bit of ramen. Yeah, just, I don't know, so much, so much. And would you have a drink alongside it? Yeah, I'd probably go for, I don't know, like a Guinness or something. I really like Guinness or a good cup of tea. I'm not a massive drinker. I like drinking. I'm not a massive drinker. Like I do like a, a sort of a nice IPA or any sort of beer made with like citra hops. I kind of like that kind of like slightly fruity kind of taste. But yeah, Guinness, I, like, I love Guinness. I, I like the Guinness. I, I'd probably want to stay quite lucid if this is my final. Is it, sorry, is it a final meal or is it a desert island meal? Well, we used to say desert island meal, but then people thought we meant they sort of had to catch their own fish. So I don't want to say death row meal because that seems morbid. <laughs> it's whatever you want it to be, I think. We can keep you lucid. Was, That's fine. Yeah, okay, okay. Because if it was my final meal ever, I would want to keep lucid. So therefore I'd probably, I wouldn't drink alcohol, but I'd have the, the 0% Guinness. Because I really like that. Yeah, it's if, good. If it was just, if it was just, you know, I was, I was kind of somewhere remote and just having a feast because he knew knew what was going to happen tomorrow and and death wasn't guaranteed. Mm. Then I'd probably let rip a bit more and maybe <laughs> have a yeah. Oh, and and then finish with like some sort of sherry. Lovely. Oh, Melissa, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining Table Talk. And Melissa Thompson's book Motherland is available now. <laughs> 